0: Bring the good old bugle boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. so we sang the chorus from atlanta to the sea while we were marching through George. hello welcome back to the american writers 100 pages at a time podcast In the last episode we talked about the overland campaign and uh and how the documents i was reading from the library of american anthology of of civil war writings focused on kind of the the, the brutality, the body count, the, the apocalyptic landscapes following these battles and just kind of a, I, I got a sense of, of weariness about the war. Um, and it was just coming document after document. Um, and, yeah, some of that's going to continue into this episode as well. But I do think there are there's 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 a little bit more to talk about besides that one theme, because uh, as we get away from the. That campaign, uh, the Overland campaign, settle into the siege of Vicksburg. Um, and, of course, the Atlanta campaign is continuing on, and that is uh, just as brutal in a lot of ways. But there are other things going on in the margins, uh, as we've seen in many episodes here. There's, uh, you know, the political aspects and the aspects of what Reconstruction and the question of northern and southern perspectives and, and all that. It's um, really uh, I think the advantage of this anthology is its broad Uh, selection of text Um, here. um, One theme that we really haven't had much time to talk about or had an opportunity to talk about is the you know, beginning to see the end in the political sense and the discussion of peace and on what terms that peace would be um, achieved Um, and we know what happened historically. It was total defeat and surrender by the South that that opened up the door to peace. Um, and then reconstruction would eventually be on on Congress's terms. Well, that's a longer story that we won't get to in this series. Um, but there were efforts north and south to have peace. And why wasn't that achieved? Why couldn't that be achieved to who's to blame for the, the, you know, the people who died in the last year of the war? Um, that's something we can finally start to talk about in in this episode. Um, Yeah, let's 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 jump into these documents. There's a few other things that are definitely very interesting in this set. Um, But interestingly, there's a lot of short documents in this in this 100 page chunk, 28 documents altogether. So um, my commentary will be a little bit faster, I think. But there's ultimately a whole lot to talk about here. Uh, The first document is Charles Francis Adams writing to Charles Francis Adams, Jr., 17th of June, 1864. Um, And this is a fun little document. Uh, Obviously, um, Charles uh, Francis Adams is in England um, doing his ambassador work, and he's writing to his his son, who's basically in the leadership of the the army um, at that time. And this document is Um, Not directly about politics. It's really an interesting reflection on on the American system of government and how this American system of government tolerated Evil and tolerated uncivilized behavior for so long He writes he actually reflects on this he reflects on uh, Jefferson's words that I tremble for my country when you know that's in the context of, of thinking about slavery he says he writes here: the moral evil which we consented to tolerate for a season has become a terrific scourge that brings the lifeblood to every instant of its application. How long this chastisement is to be continued, it is idle to attempt to predict. Only one thing is clear to me, and that is that is that is the paramount duty of future generations to not neglect again to remove the source of that evil. End quote. Um, this, of course, very much sounds like the second inaugural address uh in in theme right that that this is the price we're paying for our for our sins as a nation and and we we have a duty therefore to create something new and that's what he talks about here as well is the duty of the next generation to remake america and their failures or successes of doing so is going to set the stage for so much of the rest of 19th and into 20th century american history he writes here May you acquit yourselves with it, of it, with honor and success. He's kind of passing the baton, you know. Maybe thinking the war's won. My job here as a diplomat is less important, but your job as the younger generation is important. And that's always a problematic. Uh, we see that today with climate change too. This idea that that somehow the, the the children will save us. You know, we're too stupid or lazy or stuck on our ways to fix climate change, although we caused the problem. But but the the zoomers will fix it. Yeah, you know, some other generation will will take on the burden. Uh, Of course inevitably that is what happens change comes as younger generations You know implement it Um, But there's a there's a moral question that that you leave a mess for some other generation to clean up It happens all the time in history But he says uh the great anniversary has inspired me to write you in this strain Um, I feel that even in this moment events may be happening in America, which will make the memory of it still more dear to the lovers of human liberty and free institutions all over the world, I accept the omen. May it be verified. All right. Then next we have Charles B. Fisher's diary. Uh, he was uh, a sailor on board the on board uh, what was the ship? The Kearsarge. This is the one that sunk the Alabama, which was a convoy raider that terrorized Union shipping um, in the later years of the war and it was finally sunk in june of 1864. Um, he was one of 15 black sailors in this crew so a cool thing about the navy uh, i guess is is the desegregation of it just by the nature of being on ships Uh, merchant ships had always had like black cooks and um and seamen on them it was always a more interracial thing. You can read like the many-headed Hydra by Peter Linebaugh and Marcus Rediker, uh, or Marcus Rediker's other works about pirates to be reminded that the maritime economy was more international and interracial just by the nature of its work. You couldn't, you couldn't segregate on a ship um, in quite the same way. Sometimes there was jobs, specific jobs for black people, cooks and stewards were, were some of those jobs, but it was more integrated. And so here, then the Navy was, I I don't know. I don't know much more about it than that. Uh, it actually be interesting to look into integration in the Navy and, and, and how that worked out, um, in the, in the Jim Crow years, but anyways, not much to say here, except that this is a fairly, uh, detailed account of the battle and the sinking of it. I did think about the question of like the ethics of, of, of sailors and naval warfare because uh you know this this the the camaraderie of the sailors like this idea that it's like between the devil and the deep sea as marcus rediker described it in his book and then of course in war it's really brutal naval battle can be really brutal boarding ships hand-to-hand combat entire crews being sunk people dying on the you know at the sea Sharks, you know, all the all the things that can happen, but when a ship is sunk then what you know What's your duty to rescue the others and they rescue some of these of course they become prisoners of war But the alternative was death and but just I wonder how How you looked at? Did you look at the enemy in a different way because you you had a little bit more empathy for them? Perhaps. I don't know. I had a little bit of a sense of that here um, So anyways, Uh Next, we have Wilbur Fisk again. We've heard, so we're gonna get a bunch more of his documents, I think, before we're done here. It's like almost every episode, there's been a Wilbur Fisk document or letter to the Green Mountain Freeman. He was writing to them reporting on the war. This is about the siege, uh, or the, the second battle of Petersburg, in fact. I, I think it is, yeah, the second battle. There was actually a couple, first was kind of minor. The second battle of Petersburg is the big battle of Petersburg with thousands of casualties on both sides that set the stage for the, 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 siege of Petersburg, which would last for months until the, the, the end of the war. Um, he talks about here, how the army's reaching this end as after, this is like the last huge battle of the Overland campaign, or it's kind of starting a new campaign. I guess I'm not sure how historians divide these up, but it's, it's the end of the Overland campaign, essentially after intense fighting for, for two, three months. And now they're going to settle into this sort of siege warfare, this trench warfare, this, this um, kind of, you know, how when when firepower goes so much beyond the ability of soldiers to move and, and mobility, you get this positional warfare, like in World War One, and it starts here, of course. Um, but he does talk about how the soldiers are sort of reaching the end of their endurance. He also reflects a lot on the role of black soldiers here. And you just get a sense of, of, especially in this kind of intense warfare of the Overland campaign and later on in the siege of Vicksburg. It's, you know, it's again, kind of like a sense of, in, of, of the, of the integration of the struggle, right? Even though you still have black units and white units, they're, they're face to face, they're fighting next to each other in really, really brutal conditions. So there's more chance to reflect. Um, each other as soldiers, not just as an experiment in, you know, in can we mobilize these soldiers like it was early on. Um, and a lot of praise for him. He praises particularly Burnside's, uh, regiments, black regiments in that. But he mentions how the Southerners would have been humbled to have been taken prisoner by black soldiers, how effective they are in battle, how heavy casualties are. Um, the psychological warfare that having blacks on the battlefield would have meant for for southern racists and he reflects on like the Fort pillow massacre just a reminder of how much that's in people's minds during this period of the war reflecting on the Fort pillow massacre and similar outrages he said quote i have no doubt if the truth were known that many rebel lost his lives at the hands at the taking of the first line of fortifications after they had fallen into our hands suggesting there was revenge for the Fort Pillow Massacre by, by black soldiers. I don't know if that happened. Let's let's not assume it is, because he's just saying he suspects some of these people may have died after they were surrendered as, as payback for that. But generally, he also talks about here about the injustice of the salary differential, which was, of course, an issue throughout the war. So a really good document. I sometimes complain about Wilbur Fisk's Battlefield accounts, but but when he really is commenting on like the substance of the issues and, and The war what the war is really about. I think he's quite good um, <clears throat> We got uh, next Stephen minute weld to his father He was a union officer and he's expressing frustration at the overland campaign overall um, He actually says it's worse than the news you're getting he this is a very rare document for me because I haven't seen any critiques of of Grant. We're gonna see one more, but that's from a civilian point of view. This is a soldier criticizing Grant's conduct during the Overland campaign. And and I think most people who kind of present Grant as a butcher tend to focus on the Overland campaign and not his much more efficient Vicksburg campaign. Of course, those were different conditions and different geography and a different enemy and an entirely different situation. Um, but, you know, obviously those voices criticizing Grant were out there. He writes The only time Grant had got ahead of Lee was in crossing the James River and attacking Petersburg. He did outmaneuver him there, most certainly, but not follow up his advantage. So, so this was the one good chance we had to strike at Lee, and we failed. Um, and it's, it kind of reminds me of the criticisms we got of officers, of, of general officers back in the 1862 and 1863 volumes. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's good to have those different points of view, I guess. Um, oh, OK. We return to Eugene uh, Forbes. Let, let me talk about both Eugene Forbes documents here. Eugene Forbes wrote a diary of his time in the, in the Andersonville prison in Georgia. So we've actually met him in a previous episode. I think it was the last one we first met him. Um, and this is a really interesting document about just day to day life in the Andersonville prison. Just, I mean, obviously the conditions were poor, we don't need to, uh, reflect on that too much, uh, although his description of them are quite good, but just what a wild place it was is the sense I get. Um, some of the descriptions here are just crazy. He said there are a number, quite a number of insane men in camp. One of them has been plundering everything, but his shirt. Or has been plundered of everything, but his shirt. So he's had everything stolen from him. Later on, he mentions an insane person as well. He says a crazy man is running around naked this morning. Some scoundrel having stolen his clothes. So the problem is people are having, people are being victimized and people are being targeted. You know, people have gone around the bend, shell shocked, or you know, there's not much description here. One is description is crazy, that is insane. What that means, Eugene Forbes isn't fully telling us here, but. You know obviously in harsh conditions people are going to respond in in ways that might be deemed insane or crazy but they're being targeted by thieves and these are apparently other union prisoners who are just taking advantage of their other you know others in the camp and it's just like a big fenced off area i think i don't think this was like a like it's not a prison prison right it's just a fenced off area where uh, and he actually mentions about how there's like no food. The Confederate army doesn't have food either. So it's like they're not getting any um, food either. So there's this kind of organized raiding organized thieving is a lot of what he's describing about here. The, the Raiders is what he calls them. but They're essentially organized uh, crime um, preying on them and there's very little protection being offered by the Confederate guards they are just sort of letting this happen. They don't seem to care that much about it. We also get uh, questions of people tunneling out or, or discussion of people escaping and tunneling out again, just a sense that this is not, this is obviously not a very well maintained prison. It's not well thought out and there's chaos in its side, There seems to be not much leadership from the, from officers who are supposed to be guarding them. It seems a real mess. Even the rumors of war they get are all wrong. Like. He, has, he gets a rumor that yeah, uh, Petersburg taken and ten thousand prisoners in Beauregard taken. That's not true, you know. Uh, I guess Petersburg were taken, but the the, the the size of the victory is is wrong. I, we, we, well, what side was the trenches on at the, at the siege of Petersburg? Was it was Petersburg taken and then the trench warfare began, or was I, th- I think the, we described the siege of Petersburg? It must have been this: the Confederates were defending Petersburg during the siege. I don't quite remember, but a really, really wild document. Um, And uh, and it we get the end of the story in a later selection chosen by our editors where um, he talks about the capture and execution of the Andersonville Raiders. And there are six soldiers who are were actually captured as the as the lead men in this organized gang of, of thieves and they're hung. And one of the executions is botched. It's really, really. Uh, brutal stuff now. I looked it up. You can buy uh, Forbes entire like diary he died before uh, I think the camp was liberated. He died in in 1865 um, So the diary is just what he left behind from his experiences there but this might be worth like looking at in more detail because it's it's quite uh, Quite an amazing sounding document uh, From what I've read here uh, The first passage didn't impress me that much, but this one this section here this whole thing about what's going on here the day-to-day life of the camp really really good stuff. Uh, We have William Sherman is the the author of the next document um, writing to his wife just talking about the aftermath of a bloody the bloody Kennesaw mountain battle part of the Atlantic campaign Um, and he talks about the heavy losses and he's a bit frustrated because he realizes he has fewer resources than Grant has in Virginia he can't afford the losses that Grant is sustaining in the, the Overland Campaign, which was just finishing up at that point, he's going to have to rethink, I guess, his his strategy in seizing Atlanta. This was a hard fight, taking Atlanta. One of the Confederates' best generals who really had a defensive mind. He was a really a defense-minded general, not like Lee, charging into the north and you know, sending his men to attack the other side, uh, like at Pickus Charge. He's much more... St- strategic and thinking about defense. And he got a lot of respect from his officers. He was well loved. We uh, see that in the documents even here. Um, all right, now let's get to it. Um, in the next document, we have Horlis, Horace Greeley writing to Lincoln. This is the start of a series of documents that we'll look at that are going to talk about the peace initiative. Horace Greeley, this uh, you know, newspaper editor, Democrat, was pushing for peace talks. And he writes him very bluntly, writing the president, very bluntly saying um, this is, I've been, you know, people reached out to me from the South talking about their interest in discussing peace. And, and if you're serious about peace, now's the time to talk about it. And, and so this is the beginning of this, 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 this kind of cat- catastrophic peace talk. that think it didn't go anywhere, but. Eventually, the plan is to meet in Canada with Confederates and, and kind of work out the foundation of a peace. He says, and he says, you have a duty to do this. He says, uh, I to remind you that our bleeding, bankrupt, almost dying country also longs for peace, shudders at the prospect of fresh conscriptions and further wholesale devastations and a new river of human blood, and a widespread conviction that the government and its prominent supporters are not anxious for peace. And so, there's a couple things. One is he's making an election threat here saying we're kind of emptied we're drained and this is in the, obviously the overland campaign was bloody casualties every day in the news and then but his Greeley's really is making a threat here he's saying you're going you know your elections coming around the corner this is July 1864 the elections in a few months and you're gonna pay at the ballot box you might be kicked out of office if you don't take seriously because the country wants it so it is a threat now the proof is in the pudding the the election showed the country was going to support the continued war effort within Lincoln's leadership, largely because of soldiers and the way they, they turned in that election. But, you know, even Lincoln in 64 in thought he wasn't going to win. So he's, this is a serious threat. Um, now, the other interesting thing is here, he's really is presumptuous enough to include a plan for the peace. And that plan is, restore the union abolish slavery fine right amnesty for all principle of all confederates you know that's probably not you know that's close to what L- lincoln eventually proposed for reconstruction but it wasn't 100 blank in amnesty um here's the, the the rub though he says 400 million uh payment to the slave states. So it's some sort of compensated slavery, compensating for the emancipation of slavery, compensated emancipation. That was, of course, a proposal at times in American history. Um, abolitionists, of course, opposes. This would be a no-go for abolitionists because it, it would somehow see, acknowledge former, these former slaves as property. That was, that was lost and should be paid back lincoln's position pretty clear in the republican party position pretty clearly is that this is contraband of war if we're going to talk about property they're contraband of war and it can be seized um, but 400 million it's not much per slave i guess that's what you could say about this proposal it's um well there's what four million slaves a little three to four million slaves so we're talking about $30, $25 per slave, much less than the going rate, but no, sorry. My math Braun. That's it's like, a, it's, that'd be more like a hundred dollars per slave. Sorry. Yeah. Um, still, I think that's quite lo- quite low for the, what a slave cost. I think they were more like three or four or 500, I forget exactly, but hundreds of low balling it, but it's still compensated emancipation so that wasn't going to be that wasn't going to work uh then he talks about the details of of giving them full representation in the house on the basis of population right which of course that you know abolishing the three fifths clause in the constitution is implied it's in the 14th amendment but of course if you're not giving blacks voting rights you're actually you you're just continuing it you're actually getting more representation than you did under the three-fifths clause right because slaves couldn't vote and they're represented as three-fifths a person that gave extra representation to white southerners and then if you make it like this and you don't have blacks voting it's like a hundred it's it's increasing it by that other two-fifths it's actually increasing the representation in congress of, of the former confederates so this is a really shitty uh peace plan but anyways moving on We'll we'll come back to this issue because we see the drama unfold all right um now kind of carrying on with this uh, theme of politics we have uh lincoln Pocket vetoing the Ironclad Oath proposal. So here he's kind of punting on Reconstruction. So what one theme I think we see in this in these months is Lincoln being very very careful about post-war plans and peace in the context of the election, and then the context of of a confidence he has in Grant and Sherman in winning the war decisively on the battlefield. So one of the proposals that came from Congress was this Ironclad Oath. Uh, idea which basically would say you would have to give an oath and prove basically the burden of proof was, I think, was on the this m- t- m- t- sayer of the oath that they didn't participate in the in the war they were not supporters of the confederacy in any way which would exclude huge parts of the south from from having voting rights and, and citizenship essentially so the oath was, I solemnly swear that I have never voluntarily borne arms against the United States since I've been a citizen thereof, and I've voluntarily given no aid, continence, counsel, or encouragement to persons engaged in armed hostility, and I've neither sought nor accepted nor attempted to exercise the functions of any office whatsoever under any authority or pretended authority and hostility of the United States, that I have not yielded a voluntary support to any pretended government authority power or constitution within the United States, hostile or there Therefore, and, and then he then it's like, I affirm to defend the constitution against all enemies, all that stuff. So this was issued and um, and it got pocket pocket vetoed by Lincoln, basically not vetoing it, not signing it, just um, just putting in the desk. Right. Um, And then Johnson opposed it after Lincoln was assassinated. But it comes back uh, by the radical Republicans. Um, Now, Lincoln's was was a much easier oath to make. Even people who like were soldiers could be could take that oath and and only 10% needed to take it to get your state back in. That was the effort to kind of speed up Reconstruction after the war was won. But Lincoln doesn't want to make a decision on this at this point in the war. So he basically says we shouldn't make a commitment to any plan. He makes a statement about it. He doesn't just hide it or pretend it doesn't exist. He makes a statement about it and he says no commitment to any plan should be offered. And he offer, actually mentions how there's different situations in Louisiana and parts of North Carolina, West Virginia, you know, Tennessee, all these different places are already kind of having their own System for reconstruction, so to impose something like this is a bit premature. He's being political here, um and I'm still not in convinced of what Lincoln's reconstruction were going to look like because he died before the war was ended, before reconstruction really would have been his priority. And I, and I do think he's his sentiments would have been more at the Radical Republican position, but he's just being careful during the war, and you know, especially after getting reelected, trying to get the Thirteenth Amendment passed and trying to make sure the war is won without a compromising peace. All right. Related to this is we have Lincoln's response to the Greeley letter where he just deflects on the peace talks in a really fun way. I mean, it's a really nice, brutal little letter. He says, um, if you can find any person anywhere professing to have any proposition of Jefferson Davis in writing for peace, embracing the restoration of the union and abandonment of slavery, whatever else it embraces, say to them, he may come to me with you and that if he really brings such a proposition, he shall at least have safe con- conduct. So he's saying, yeah, l- don't meet in Canada. If someone wants a peace, my door's open. You'll have safety of passage to Washington and he can negotiate a peace, which obviously is not what Confederates are willing to do. Um, that is um, not willing to negotiate directly with Lincoln about it. So he's being very, uh, he's, it's good politics here. Um, now, after this, we have a series of documents, which I'm just sort of going to deflect. I'm going to pocket veto these documents just because they're not that interesting to me. They deal with the Jubal Early raid on near Washington. Basically, I think Jubal Early's cavalry went through the Shenandoah Valley and, and kind of harassed Washington because most of the troops had left Washington for the Overland Campaign. and It was, you know, not super well defended, but it was still like really well fortified. So Jubal Early gets there and he's like... Eh nope go back and he kind of sneaks back but before he sneaks back grant tries to get him capture him and he sends some troops to try to capture him and they get away that's basically what happens uh i'm sure that's of interest to some to some readers i'm telling you it's there but um it's it's kind of like the third time a major confederate invasion of the north is able to kind of slink past the potomac through that same route you know you know, first after Antietam, then after Gettysburg, and now after this raid. But this is like, you know, first a tragedy, then a farce. Almost this, this seems like a, such a joke campaign. Like, what's the point of it? It's like there's no way the handful of cavalry troops are going to do anything to seize Washington. But apparently, there was like they got close enough to like shoot into Washington, and there was some event that Lincoln was at, and there was firing nearby. So kind of a harassment, but not much more than that but carrying on this question of the peace um, procedures that's really what we've got to focus on um unofficial peace talks um so lincoln he does do what he said he did in the Greeley letter which is offer up safe passage to um any confederate who's coming north on peace talks and he writes it out He, he writes it out formally uh saying any proposition which embraces the restoration of peace, the integrity of the whole Union, and the abandonment of slavery, and which comes by and with an authority that can control the armies now at war with the United States, will be received and considered by the executive government of the United States, and will be met by liberal terms on other substantial and collateral points. And the bear or bears thereof shall have safe conduct, safe passage both ways, or whatever. It doesn't say anything. It says, basically, you can come to surrender <laughs> to me, um, and we'll try to be as nice as possible he's not he's not saying oh i'm giving he's not giving up any ground which he shouldn't do right especially not when he's winning i think what makes lincoln so great is not that he he's being hardcore at the end of the war though it's that that was his position even when the union was losing um so then we have the clement clay and james p holcomb writing to horace greeley document which is um the Confederate response to this. So this is written from Canada. They went to Canada. Um, So Greeley and this other guy, John Hale, went to Canada to meet with these people. And this is like the product of that meeting and that conversation. And it's, you know, there's really no ground for peace talks based on what Lincoln has done. So Lincoln basically blocked this Greeley effort to to uh, do this peace talk sort of behind his back. Um, and Greeley sort of walks into it, it seems to me. Um, so the Confederates here are saying, well, we wanted to have a compromise, a, a, a comprehensive kind of compromise position. The president seemed to open the door and there was gonna be none of which Lincoln says. He says, there oh, could be free discussion. That's what they wanted. They wanted to have all this list of things that could be negotiable. And, and Lincoln didn't open up any of those doors, but they thought we, we thought you were gonna be nice to us. And, he did it. And then he, basically the conclusion is there's really no ground here um, for for peace um, because um, because there's no negotiation on the issue of slavery, it seems that's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, and it's just the limits of this, any kind of peace talk by these kind of third parties, anyone not in a position to really just surrender. Um the incapacity of real peace with with Lincoln as leadership. Of course Lincoln gets blamed for this for for not negotiating with with us, right? For not giving us our due respect. And a lot of pathos in this document about human statemanship and the carnage of war and and we were promised safe conduct and we we thought we were gonna get a proper negotiation. Um, Here's how they conclude. While an earnest desire for peace pervades the people of the Confederate States, we rejoice to believe there are few, if any among them, who would purchase it at the expense of liberty, honor, and self-respect. If it can be secured only by their submission to terms of conquest, the generation is yet unborn, which will witness its restitution. If there be any military autocrat in the North who is entitled to proffer the conditions of this manifesto, there are none in the South authorized to entertain it. So basically, if this is the peace position, there's no one in the South who has the authority to do that, to grant that. So that closes that door. It's going to be decided on the battlefield, um, clearly. And and I think Lincoln seemed, my position is Lincoln sort of handled this quite well. Um, the follow-up document here is uh, James R. Gilmore writing to the Boston e- Evening Transcript. This was... Um, This was kind of, I guess, Lincoln doing his, his response to all of this. This is all happening days with within days of each other too, where he sent this guy, James F Jacques, um, and this guy, James Arnold Gilmer, who writes this document to meet, uh, with, to go into Confederate held territory, meet with Jefferson Davis and they came back. With the position um, on this, and we we, we get uh, Davis's red line, I guess. And he's more. Here's what he says. I mean, there's obviously no grounds for negotiation based on this, which is why that other piece. I mean, this is what Lincoln was saying, right? I'll negotiate with Davis, maybe Stevens, if he wants to show up. He says it will result in nothing. Jefferson Davis said to me last Sunday, and with all his faults, I believe him a man of truth, this war must go on till the last of this generation falls in its tracks and his children seize his musket and fight our battles, unless we acknowledge our right to self-government. We are not fighting for slavery. We are fighting for independence and that or extermination we will have. So, yeah, I mean, point one that Lincoln said is like, yeah, restoration of the Union. So, um, at this point in the war, no grounds for peace. So I don't... The losers didn't compromise, I guess. Or at least didn't realize they were losing yet. Willing to sacrifice the next generation of children. Um, maybe he was drunk when he said that. All right. Anything else here to talk about? Some stuff on the Atlanta campaign. Battle of the Crater. Faith in Johnson by Georgian soldiers. There is one beautiful document though I have to talk about though. Um, if I can find it. Yeah, John Q.A. So I guess Quincy Adams, John Quincy Adams dentist. So this guy, this is a former slave. He was freed in in 1863 by Colonel William Briney who had uh, some recruitment campaign in Maryland now, of course, this is—we talked about this before in the last couple episodes about this status of slaves who escape slavery from the border states, the places that weren't that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to. And so, um, there was all kinds of justifications given for freeing such slaves, like the master was cruel or something. There, there always be some excuse, and then the military would, or maybe they were too supportive of the Confederacy there were justifications made for freeing these people. Um, and it seemed it wasn't that, there wasn't much follow up on the details. It was just do it. But this letter, this is this is a beautiful letter written by a desperate father uh, who has very little education clearly because there's all the misspellings and grammar and punctuation mistakes all over the place here. And he's writing to Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War, and he's asking him to basically help him get his children back who are still legally enslaved in Maryland. He says, he writes, but what I want to know of you, sir, is, is it possible for me to go and take my children from these men that keep them in slavery? If it is possible, will you please give me a permit from your hand? Then I think they would let them go. I do not know what to do, but I'm sure you know what is best for me to do. And he, um, he talks here as well about his poverty and his suffering, yet, what he wants in his life is his children back. And now, thankfully, he would only have to wait a few more months in any case. We don't know if Stanton replied to him, but we would only have to wait a few months because on uh, November 1st, 1865, Maryland abolished slavery. So um, I think that's it. There's, oh, the Battle of Crater is, 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 is interesting too this was an effort to try to break up the Petersburg trenches and then soldier soldiers went into the crater and it was a bloodbath a union for the for the Union a really one-sided horrible battle um, and we have a Confederate witness to this battle writing to his wife a guy named William Pegram. and he pretty shockingly here justifies the cold-blooded murder of some black soldiers. He says a few of our men were wounded by the Negroes which exacerbated them very much. There were hardly less than 600 dead, 400 of whom were Negroes. As soon as we got upon them, they threw down their arms to surrender but were not allowed to do so. Every bomb proof I saw had one or two dead Negroes in it who had sulked out of the fight and been found and killed by our men. This was perfectly right. So here, That's okay. People die in war and we already know Confederates had no gumption about executing black soldiers who surrendered from the Bill massacre, but this blatant justification of it. He says, this was perfectly right as a matter of policy. I think over 200 Negroes got into our lines by surrendering and running in along with the whites and while fighting was going on. I don't believe that much over half of these ever reached the rear. You could see them lying dead all along the route to their rear. While there was a temporary lull in the fighting after we had captured the first portion of the line and before we recaptured the second, I was down there and saw a fight between a Negro and one of our men in the trench. I suppose that the Confederate told the Negro he was going to kill them after he had surrendered. This made the Negro desperate. He grabbed up the musket. They fought quite desperately for a little while with bayonets until the bystander shot the Negro dead. So what he's saying here is the blacks will, I guess, fake being Confederate camp followers and laborers. But they're in union uniforms I, I i don't buy it um but but he is saying there's hand-to-hand combat between blacks and black soldiers and confederates in the in the trenches um so he goes on it seems cruel to murder them in cold blood but i think the men who did it had very good cause for doing so general mahone told me that one man who had a bayonet run through his cheek which instead of making him throw it on his musket and run to the rear as men usually do when they're wounded exacerbated him so much that he killed the negro though in that condition i have always said that i wish the enemy would bring some negroes into this army i am convinced and fight, that it has a splendid effect on our men um yeah, that's some weird logic there but I I don't know. Actually, I'm kind of baffled by the document, having read it a second time now. I'm not quite sure what to say about it. Uh, Anyways, there's a few other documents I skipped here with the Atlantic Campaign or whatever, but they're a bit repetitive from things I've already established in this series. So the next episode will cover um, August through October of 1864. Which will get us like right into election season. So there's going to be a lot more election stuff going on to talk about. But anyways, that's it for now. I will uh, let me know what you think about any of this stuff. Um, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for Natural listening. Freedom and her train 60 miles in latitude, 300 to the main. Treason fled before us, for resistance was in vain. While we were marching through Georgia Hooray! hooray we bring the Jubilee